Welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Every day, decisions are made across Maine that impact our environment, and Mainers play a crucial role as we speak up for climate action, the clear air, clear water, and open spaces that we all love. Come sit down with advocates and experts to discuss some of the most important stories that you need to know, what lies ahead, and hear what you can do about it. Thanks for listening as we share our view from the front lines. Hi, I'm your host, Colin Durant, and welcome to another exciting episode of Frontline Voices. Uh, Well, on October 26th, NRCM held our 2022 Conservation Leadership Awards, which is one of everyone's favorite events of the year. Uh, Since 1987, NRCM has recognized 170 individuals and groups with an award for their environmental leadership. Our goal simply is to shine a spotlight on the people who dedicate so much of their time and energy to protecting the main places and wildlife they love. Every year we find the speeches of these awardees so inspirational. They're just full of heart, passion, and commitment. Every awardee represents a sampling of the broad network of advocates who make a difference every single day in protecting Maine's environment. And without these dedicated individuals, the work of NRCM simply wouldn't be possible. So for this episode, what we wanted to do is share with you the speeches from our 2022 Conservation Leadership Award winners. So sit back and enjoy. We hope it brings you a little light and hope as we enter this, the darkest time of the year. The first speech we'll hear is from this year's Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Dr. Steve Kress. Dr. Kress is the scientist who, starting in his 20s, led the restoration of Atlantic puffins to Eastern Egg Rock, one of Maine's greatest wildlife restoration projects ever. So 50 years ago, before personal computers, before cell phones, before photovoltaics, I had this idea. Wouldn't it be wonderful if puffins nested again on a little speck of rock eight miles from Hog Island called Eastern Egg Rock? Wouldn't that be something? I didn't realize at the time what a naive this idea is. (laughs) I didn't realize the obstacles that lay ahead as I tried to pull this off. For example, finding people who didn't know each other to spend the whole summer living on a little tiny rock. There were lots of them, it turns out, who would love to do this kind of work. It made all the difference. I didn't know about the predators. I didn't know about the invasive plants. I didn't think about little boats in a big sea and what can happen. But I learned from all of this. There's people out there There are predators out there, and there's ways to make this vision come true, if only I would stick with it. And somehow, because Egg Rock was an island, I thought this must be manageable. After all, you can see the perimeter of it, and you could manage what happens on such a small place. But of course, what happens on Egg Rock is connected to everything else in the world, and the birds don't stay put. And what happens to them when they're not there also affected this vision that I was hoping would happen. So when I started on this improbable quest, I thought it would only take a few summers. 
And then I'd move on to something else. So now 50 years later, what have we got to show for it? Well, we've got about 200 pairs of puffins nesting on eastern egg rock. And a lot of young birds coming along behind them. And there are hundreds of young biologists inspired by their days on eastern egg rock that are out there with careers, some of them already retiring <laughs> at the end of their productive careers. Yes, and, and so I began to realize that uh, something was very special on egg rock the day that I discovered turn eggs among decoys. Now, I remember the revelation that day. Up to that moment, we'd been out there with a hope and a vision of what was possible, but we were still part of a tradition of protection. And that's what seabird conservation was all about leading up to that day. But on that day, when we discovered eggs among decoys, we realized it, there was something special happening. It wasn't just protection anymore, it was restoration. We had not only protected a colony, we have created a colony. And so Eastern Egg Rock was the beginning of a vision of restoration for seabirds that has spread from that little rock around the world, island by island. And we've demonstrated that people really can make a difference because in the over 800 sort of projects that are patterned off of Egg Rock, behind each one is a conservation hero. Somebody else has been out there dedicating their lives just as the people in this room are dedicating their lives to preserve parts of Maine and its magnificent resources. And so this toolbox of seabird conservation uh, has got some new tools now, chick translocation, and something we call social attraction. I had no idea this idea of attraction of birds to a new place would have such profound effect that now it's being used on land birds. It's being used on amphibians. It's now attracting fish to new coral reefs by playing back the sounds. Uh, so it, it's no end to what's possible, I think, when people start thinking about being restorers rather than only protectors. And people often ask me, why is it that uh, what did you do? How did you keep going for those eight years before puffins finally decided to nest on egg rock? What kept you going? Because there was eight years where nothing was really happening. We did not see a puffin with fish for eight years. And, and although I knew that if we were successful, endangered species would benefit, and that was undeniable, but really behind it, it was I didn't want the naysayers to get the last word. <laughs> You all know about the naysayers. They can't get the last word. They serve a role, I think, for conservationists. It makes us work harder. Yeah. And how much longer are you going to have to keep those interns on egg rock? That's another question I, I'm asked all the time. And I say, I don't really see an end to it. But you know what? That's a good thing because that project has become more about, as much about people as it's become about birds. The day when people are not out there, then we're not training the next generation 
of conservation biologists. So we got to keep the people there, to keep the birds, and that's a good thing. Keeping more and more people engaged in conservation, that's the future. Then more people will care. So 50 years ago, the naysayers said that moving animals from place to place, controlling gall populations, that was playing God. It was much better to let nature take its course. That's another thing that's changed over 50 years. More and more, we realize we can't let nature take its course without humans. We are the problem, we are the solution, we need to take action. Because sitting back, just hoping things will get better, usually doesn't work. It's the action that makes a difference. So thank you for all the action I hear about from NRCM. So, the essence of stewardship, I think, on a planet where everything is connected is about engagement and about taking part in projects locally, inspiring the people to really gather around and to stay with you. And that's why I'm so pleased to have this award because this is award not just for me, it is for the hundreds of interns and conservationists and educators that have been part of Project Puffin since day one. So thank you NRCM and thank you all those people that made this award possible. Troy Moon and Julie Rosenbach received a Conservation Leadership Award for leading sustainability efforts in the cities of Portland and South Portland, especially for their work in developing One Climate Future. That's a comprehensive climate and sustainability plan uh, for both cities. It's one of the most ambitious local climate plans in the country. Uh, you might have seen Julie in the news recently about South Portland's new solar project on their, their old capped landfill. It's got 12,000 solar panels and is expected to save the city millions of dollars in energy costs. Well, first of all, thank you so much. I feel so entirely honored to be up here. Um, and then I feel so grateful to be up here with Troy because I feel like we have been partners in all of the work that we've done. Um, and I couldn't ask for a better person to, to work with across the cities. All of the work that we've done, um, and I know from my office, um, I get to stand up here with Troy, but it has been a collaborative team effort. It would never have happened without the, um, the forward-thinking leadership of our city council, without a fantastic team of sustainability staff that work with me in my department, without the overwhelming community support that we have for these initiatives. Um, all of that makes it possible for us to get together and put programs and policies um, through to, to, to make these massive changes in a way that we can work in in a practical way. Um, and so I feel really grateful and honored and um, thank you so much. Yeah, I want to echo Julie's remarks. Um, we kind of, both of our city councils had similar ideas about what they, where they wanted to go. So we were like, one, one day we we're like, oh, I need to do a climate action plan. And Julie's like, well, I need to do a climate action plan. So why don't we do a climate action plan together? And it was, it was just a remarkable experience. And it was, um, you know, I think it was really one of the most gratifying projects that I've ever had the opportunity to work on in my entire career. We had an amazing team working with Julie and, and her, on her team. She had um, Lucy Perkins was on her, in, in my office. We had um, 
Ashley Krulik, and we were just, it was, we just worked so closely together, and it was really amazing. But um, the, reason we, we, the, the reason that we do this work and the reason that our city councils um, do this work is because we care so much about our communities. We talk all, all the time about what makes, you know, why are we doing this work? It's because, you know, the quality of life and what we, we really value in Portland and South Portland is the people. You know, so this is, we, we like, you know, we like EV chargers and we like heat pumps, but really, we really, really love our communities and we really um, appreciate the support we get from the communities. I think part of the reason we have that support is we really were intentional about our planning. You know, we could have done a plan, you know, pretty quickly. We could have thought about, you know, we could have some strategies, but, I think, but then it would have been Troy and Julie's plan. It wouldn't have been, you know, Portland, South Portland community plan. So we, we spent 18 months working uh, in the community. We, had, we held over 100 events um, where people would come. We started doing them in person. We went anywhere people would have us. We went up online and you know, people, we wanted the people in the communities to understand what climate change meant for our communities. We wanted to hear input about you know, what things they cared about and option, you know, strategies that they would support. Um, and, and they really came out and it was a remarkable. At all of these events we had, you know, we had hundreds of people uh, we engaged with it. I remember one of the last ones we had gone online because of COVID and there was a family gathered around, around, gathered around a cell phone um, to hear, to be part of the conversation. That just like shows the commitment that our communities have and, and we wouldn't be here without it and we wouldn't be literally implementing some of the strategies that, you know, a lot of the strategies actually that, um, that um, Jack mentioned. And so I would invite folks if you want to see kind of our scorecard, we're going to update it soon. Uh, OneClimateFuture.org, you can kind of see where things are going. And uh, we, again, we appreciate the support of our communities and we really appreciate our partnership with NRCM. Um, we, we've done so much work with NRCM on you know, clean energy and waste reduction and uh, product stewardship. And we hope to continue to work together with you guys in the future. So again, thanks very much. Acadia National Park had it busiest September ever, according to the Bangor Daily News. And our next Conservation Leadership Award winner, Frenchman Bay United, led the campaign in opposition to an industrial fish farm on the doorstep of Acadia in Frenchman Bay that would pose a serious threat to the environment, surrounding communities, and fishing families. Thank you. Uh, coming from the state's leading environmental organization, this award has special meaning. Uh, for all of us, and I'm pleased to accept it on behalf of our members and partners. I'm joined here today by founding board members Kathleen Rybars of Lemoyne, president of Friends in Frenchman Bay, Jackie Weaver, Goolsboro, Friends of Scudic Peninsula, and Jamie Patterson of Save the Bay in Hancock. Unfortunately, our Unfortunately, our other founding board members were unable to join us today, but I wanted to acknowledge them. Jerry Bowers of Friends of Eastern Bay, Crystal Canny of Protect Maine's Fishing Heritage, and our board president, Henry Sharp of Sereno. We all got involved in this fight because of our love for Frenchman Bay and the communities surrounding it. From the time it was announced, we saw American Aquafarms as a threat to the environment, to the local economy, to Acadia National Park, and a way of life that has endured four generations. As Melanie noted, our coalition is broad and deep, including lobster fishermen and women, small-scale aquaculture, year-round residents, seasonal residents, tourism and recreation businesses, land trusts, public officials, national park advocates, 
and local and national and international environmental groups like Parlay for the Oceans, which did that video. It also includes NRCM, for which we are deeply grateful, uh, especially to Melanie and Pete for their assistance. From a small group meeting weekly almost two years ago, we have grown into an organization with more than 400 members, and we have raised more than half a million dollars. Much of it spent on sophisticated modeling, data collection, and the validation of environmental and economic impacts that have helped us make the case against this project. While the project is dead for now, its backers have promised to come back with new applications, so our work continues. We will be ready for them when they return, and we will continue to advocate for changes that will protect other coastal communities from having to fight projects like this. Our board president, Henry Sharp, who I'm sorry couldn't be here tonight, has worked tirelessly to analyze the American Aquafarms permit applications to build the data that we have used to fight this project, to grow our coalition. Yesterday, I reached out to him to see if there was anything he wanted me to say. I expected Henry, Henry would say, you know, don't forget to tell them about the 4.1 billion gallons of, of waste discharge every day or the 80,000 gallons of diesel fuel that will be stored on site and all the other horrible aspects of this project. But his reply was much deeper than that, and I wanted to share it with you because I think it speaks to what we're all trying to do here. He said, the thing I keep coming back to as we consider the public trust of our resources is the need to manage them in ways that ensure their abundance, not their scarcity. Too often, we take the continued sustainability of our natural resources for granted. In an effort to regulate their use, we offer permits that are, despite best efforts, nothing more than licenses to pollute and, de and, and deplete until suddenly those things that we all hold dear are gone and extinct. Instead of granting permits to use smaller and smaller amounts of increasingly scarce resources, we should stop to reconsider how to ensure the prolonged abundance of those things that we all depend on. So thank you again for this award and for all that you do, NRCM, to protect and defend Maine's natural resources. Thank you. Dr. Robin Hadlock-Seeley received a Conservation Leadership Award for her work to ensure the protection of rockweed, a keystone species found on the Maine coast, and for her leadership in the successful effort to ban industrial mining in Pembroke. A month or so ago when Nick Bennett told me that I'd be receiving an NRCM Conservation Leadership Award, I first thought I'd misheard him, really. I have long admired NRCM as an organization for its willingness to lead on important issues in Maine through advocacy and the law. I've deeply appreciated Nick's support on both the issues for which I'm being honored tonight. Congratulations to fellow awardees past and present. This is a leadership award and so I accept it with humility, conscious of the partners that have supported both the mine and the seaweed work. The mine work led to defeat of a proposal to site a Wolfton silver mine and bring their Picket Mountain mine waste to our small town of Pembroke on the shores of Copscook Bay. But this defeat required the singular focus and smarts of our small, hardworking core team from Friends of Copscook Bay who must share this honor with me. We are proud to be the first town in Maine to resoundingly reject commercial scale mining through a town ordinance. 
This achievement was the direct result of NRCM's work to pass new mining regulations in 2017. Another statewide issue, as you've heard, is the virtually unlimited commercial cutting of a critical habitat-forming seaweed that forms a marine forest, forest, known locally as rockweed. And even if you didn't recognize the name, if you live in Maine, you know this seaweed. It lies down at low tide and creates a border on our rocky shoreline. At high tide, the trees stand erect in the water and fish swim through this forest. This remarkable marine forest provides critical services to wildlife in decline. If you love shorebirds, you might know that migrating yellowlegs, sandpipers, and plovers all forage in the floating rockweed canopies. If you prefer herons, common eiders, terns, or black ducks, they all depend on essential fish habitat, or EFH, for juvenile cod. Many other fish species, including commercial species in Maine, are found in these forests at high tide, as well as lobster. And the state's Maine Won't Wait climate plan also recognizes rockweed's role as blue carbon, along with salt marshes, eelgrass, and eelgrass beds and kelp forests. Maine's rockweed beds are carbon-absorbing superstars, sequestering 14 times as much carbon as eelgrass. But a full 80% of the US wild-harvested seaweed is rockweed from Maine. After processing its fertilizer for golf courses across the US and feed supplements around the world for cattle and horses. It makes no sense that Maine is trying, on the one hand, to protect these species like shorebirds, heron, and cod in the face of population declines, ocean warming, and biodiversity loss. And yet, on the other hand, Maine encourages widespread extraction of the very seaweed habitat these species depend on. Commercial voices have a lot of power in this debate, while there are few to speak for the wild species. By raising these, these issues, I am now in a select group of people being sued by the rockweed industry at this very moment, which I take as a recognition of my effectiveness in this campaign <laughs> to protect rockweed. <laughs> But I much prefer the recognition that comes from being a Conservation Leadership Awardee. So thank you, NRCM. And I also want to recognize important rockweed allies, some of which are here tonight, um, most of all my family, um, who suffered through what all other families suffer through when they have an, uh, an activist in their midst. Um, Ken Ross, other board members of the Maine Rockweed Coalition, and also Colleen O'Connell, of the Center for Ecological Teaching and Learning on Copsicle who's also here tonight. Thank you so very much. And finally, this year's People Choice Award winner is Don't Waste Maine. They're a group of Mainers who came together to advocate for policies that protect communities most at risk from the negative impacts of waste facilities. And it was because of the hard work of these individuals and so many others that we were able to close the out-of-state waste loophole in Maine law in last year's legislative session. I want to thank the members of NRCM for selecting our group for the People's Choice Award. Our group began as a bunch of activists who met each other at public hearings when a state-owned landfill in West Old Town was first proposed, worked together to testify against another expansion of the Pine Tree Landfill in Hamden, and met down in Augusta, testifying before all manner of solid waste issues. 
We know about the impacts of landfills and incinerators on our air and our water and our lives. And we educated ourselves about the workings of the waste industry and what responsible policies might look like. We started meeting informally at Laura Sandburn's house in Alton and officially began our group about five years ago. The name Don't Waste Maine comes from an email list that Hillary Lister, one of our founding members, had started to keep us all in touch. Hillary had led the fight to shut down a biomass incinerator in Athens, and she wrote the original language of our first bill, LD401, to stop the massive amounts of waste from out of state from coming into our state-owned landfill through a loophole in the definition of Maine waste. That bill got co-opted by the waste industry lobby, and it ended up doing the opposite of what we were working on. We've been, we've been used to working hard, organizing, writing to DP, testifying at public hearings around the state, and then watching as the waste industry got its way. So we came back with another bill last fall, LD 1639, and this time we were really prepared. We had strong allies, including the extraordinary efforts of Sarah Nichols, who did so much to make this bill a reality and Ann Carney, our Senate sponsor, with Community Action Network, which has now evolved to Slingshot, Maine Conservation Voters, the Sierra Club, Sunlight Media Collective, who produced that video, and the Penobscot Nation, among others. We met with legislators, we testified, we wrote letters, emails. We had a caravan around the Juniper Ridge landfill on Earth Day and the legislature passed our bill. We closed that loophole. There is still a lot to do when it comes to dealing with our discarded resources, but this victory and this award give us momentum to go forward and to take the next steps. Thank you. To each of this year's Conservation Leadership Awardees and to all of you who care so much about pretend, uh, protecting the nature of Maine, a huge thank you. You are such an important part of the safety net for our environment. And thanks also to you, our listeners, for tuning in once again. Please share our podcast with your friends, family, and neighbors so we can, can continue to spread the word, get more people involved in this, in this wonderful community of people who value Maine's clean air, clean water, healthy forests, and vibrant communities. Thanks for listening to Maine Environment Frontline Voices. If you enjoy this episode, you can subscribe to our podcast or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and several other podcast listening apps. Since 1959, NRCM has been tapping into the power of the Maine people, science, and the law to protect and enhance the nature of Maine. To learn more about our work, visit nrcm.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Twitter, 